this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. By supporting the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing, you get free audiobooks and bonus episodes. Hi, this is Linus Wilson. So, since I last spoke to you on episode 38, Hurricanes Harvey uh, ravaged the Texas coast and caused massive flooding with massive amounts of rainfall. We've also had Hurricane Irma, which was a Category 5 storm, the strongest storm ever uh, recorded in the Atlantic Basin with maximum sustained winds of 185 miles an hour, and those high winds continued for many days. Hurricane Irma touched down on Barbuda, which is part of the nation of Antigua and Barbuda. And Antigua was actually where I first sailed. We never got to visit Barbuda. I don't think we had time, but I was tempted to do it. It's relatively small compared to its sister island, Antigua. And that island was really hit hard by Irma. The government authorities there said that 95% of the structures were damaged and they evacuated every person on that island to Antigua. And so uh, there's a lot of articles going around in places like the New York Times talking about how civilization was extinguished in Barbuda. Thankfully, that was mostly because of evacuations, relatively few deaths, but I don't have the statistics for that. But Irma was a deadly storm. And, you know, unlike Harvey, it was really a wind event. And it was very damaging to the charter businesses uh, in the Caribbean. So if you want to talk about some of the the more developed and the, the more popular charter destinations, I think St. Martin and the BVIs and the U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, those are the places. And those places were... Uh, really destroyed. A big proportion of the charter fleet was destroyed by those very high winds uh, that went right through St. Martin and places like Tortola, but they also touched on many of the BVIs and uh, many of the U.S. Virgin Islands. And so I think I saw one broker who focuses on catamarans, and I think the charter fleets are moving more towards catamarans because you can uh, stick more people in them. And those, his argument was that good luck finding a new catamaran for years to come because the charter businesses need to replace their old sunken ones. And so, but Irma, you know, everybody from Florida knows that Irma did not stop there in the the Virgin Islands, it kept on going and it caused a lot of flooding in Cuba and the Keys were evacuated for Hurricane Irma and that was where our guest today, uh, Captain Mark Reinhardt, had his boat in the Key West Garrison Bight. And so everybody in the Keys was, uh, had a mandatory evacuation for Irma. So Captain uh, Mark J. Reinhardt's story it hits home uh, with me personally because we spent uh, several weeks in the uh, Garrison Bight mooring field in Key West. And I can totally see how in a major storm 
in a hurricane, direct hit, or very high winds, uh, that a lot of boats could be destroyed. And one of the things that Mark Reinhardt reports in this interview is that there were 50 boats on moorings in the Key West mooring field there, and only six of them remained on moorings when he returned right after the storm, as soon as it was uh, humanly possible to get back there. And the other 44 boats were either sunk or beached or were blown out to sea. I believe the eye of the Hurricane Irma, which was maybe a Category 3 or 4 when it made landfall in Key West, was you know, between Key West and Marathon. And the other big mooring field in the Keys is the Marathon Boot Key Harbor. And I mentioned in my book, Slow Boat to the Bahamas, that it's, you know, it's very much a cruiser's destination, especially in the winter time. Uh, and it has quite a live-aboard cruiser community there. And the Garrison Bite is a open to the the winds and swells to the north, but it's more or less protected from the other directions. Uh, But Bootkey Harbor is pretty much surrounded by land. Nevertheless, the harbor master at Bootkey, or the Marathon Municipal Harbor, says that 70% of the boats on moorings parted their moorings and are wrecked along the various keys and mangroves or sunk, that only 30% of the boats on moorings survived the storm. So I've been doing kind of extensive coverage on the Facebook page and also to a lesser extent the, the blog, which, uh, which is on slowboatsailing.com and you go to the blog link or the Facebook page is Slow Boat to the Bahamas about the impact from these hurricanes to boaters. I also done three videos on the YouTube channel about the impact to boaters of these storms. And one is called Preparing Your Boat for Hurricane Irma. Uh, The other is called Sunk by Hurricane Maria and Irma, Sailing Paradise Lost. And the third one is about some sailboats that are rescued by the Coast Guard called Sailing Offshore in Hurricane Irma. And they generally rely on uh, footage from the Coast Guard, which is public access, or maybe the uh, Dutch military. You know, I, I think you can't really overstate the impact that Irma had to the, the BVI and St. Martin in particular. And I haven't seen stats on the USVI, but that may also be true of the US Virgin Islands. But when we're talking about St. Martin, both Dutch and French, and then the British Virgin Islands, the estimated destruction from Hurricane Irma exceeds their national GDP, that is their annual earnings for a year. And, you know, since these are tourist destinations that depend on the hotels and the boats, and if the hotels are wrecked and the boats are sunk or wrecked, then Obviously, their income next year is going to be much reduced while they are cleaning up and retooling and getting new boats. So after Hurricane Katrina led to a 
30-foot storm surge in past Christian, Mississippi. Decades later, there are still wrecked boats sticking out of the water uh, that cause a hazard to navigation and really discourage people from visiting by boat past Christian, Mississippi. And I think the same thing is kind of true in the BVIs, the USVIs, and the St. Martin that, you know, unless these boats are refloated and and moved out at great expense, then there'll be more hazards to navigation in these beautiful waters. So I think the cleanup's going to take a long time, that it's not going to be quick. It's not going to bounce back quickly. You know, New Orleans, where my boat hails from, my boat did su- survive Hurricane Katrina in uh, Municipal Harbor, where most of the boats were destroyed. We also had a boat, uh, our prior boat, Penelope, in South Shore Harbor, where most of the boats were destroyed by Katrina. New Orleans has really never recovered its its population from the 2005 storm Hurricane Katrina. Harvey is uh, predicted to exceed the costs of the great flooding in New Orleans from Hurricane Katrina and the levee breach. And we'll see what the costs of Irma to Florida and the Caribbean will be. And of course, we just had Maria, which has knocked out power to Puerto Rico and swiped the U.S. Virgin Islands again. So uh, the, the cost of these Category 5 storms, Maria and Irma, we still don't know, but Irma's going to be a very big bill. Harvey, the, the four feet of rain that some places got in just a matter of days, uh, that flooding to the fourth largest city in the United States, Houston, those costs are going to be very high. Let's have a word from our sponsor, Mantis Marine, who was offering discounts on its anchors in advance of Hurricane Irma to affected boaters. I talked to Greg Cutson of Mantis Anchors about why weight in the tip of the Mantis Anchor is so important. The main issue I perceived with anchors was not really ultimate holding power. The reason they failed was because they never really properly set first place. So very rarely, 25 knots, you're overpowering a well-set anchor. We wanted to create something that guarantees you a universal set. As a cruiser, when you go around, you find unique locations that are really hard to get an anchor to bite. And we solve that problem. Go to mantisanchors.com to order yours for a better night's sleep. Okay, so on this podcast, I have really focused on interviewing cruising sailors who have, you know, gone to foreign ports and gone on amazing trips. And these are are typically very exceptional people uh, within the cruiser community that they've gone on long trips and often did it with limited budgets. They weren't retired like many cruisers but they were relatively young. So they were all exceptional in a lot of ways. I think that there's a other uh, larger class of boaters that may be better classified as liveaboards, that they live on their boat probably year round, probably someplace warm like Florida, and that while they may move their boat, they may not. They may never move their boat within a year or they may move it just rarely they may have engines that do not work very well. So I've never seen any 
definition of you know what's a level board and what's a cruiser but i don't know if i were going to pick something out of the air i'd say if you moved your boat 500 miles within a year you know maybe you're a cruiser if you've moved your boat to a foreign location within a year then you're a cruiser but if you move don't move your boat 500 nautical miles within a year then maybe you'd say this person is a liveaboard and not really cruising that they're more living on their boat and that of course is very different than living on the land but to also say that they're cruising and exploring new locations is probably inaccurate that they are living in a location on a boat and i think you know when you talk about captain reinhardt i think he, he it started out and he kind of had a business that didn't make it didn't do as well as he had hoped and he decided to sell his last bit of land and and fix up this ericsson 39 and it took him longer to fix it up than he expected but then he did go on the big cruise in the second year of living on the boat and that cruise lasted for a few months and then he came back to South Florida and probably would say that now he's more or less a resident of Key West and he's been living on his boat. And, you know, I think uh, I met a lot of people in Key West that were really kind of could not be classified as cruisers that they didn't have plans to go on any cruises. You talk to them and they would not have gone any place far away from the mooring field in quite a while. I'd say the Garrison Bight mooring field, I think one of the things that comes up in, in this interview is he talks about his water catchment system. And I think that's really interesting. And that's certainly worth buying his book to learn about his water catchment system. Nevertheless, there are washing machines and showers, or at least when I was there in 2015, that people who are on a mooring or are at the marina at Garrison Bight have access to. So I think he definitely has been off the grid, which is the name of his book, uh, for a long time. But at Garrison Bight, he did have access to water-saving things like showers at the marina and washers and dryers at the marina if he chose to use them. Without further ado, here is Captain Mark J. Reinhardt. How are you doing, Captain Reinhardt? I came across your book, actually. Uh, I was uh, just kind of surfing around Amazon and they recommended your book. Uh, what's? Uh, could you give me the name of it? I have it here, but... Uh, off the Grid. Off the Grid. How I quit the rat race and I live for free aboard a sailboat. Yeah, yeah, used to. <laughs> That's also an interesting story. I, so I guess you were affected by Irma. Yeah, yeah, I, was, I had two boats, two sailboats down in the Keys. The original reports on Irma was it was going to miss the Keys and hit Fort Lauderdale was the first direction that they were predicting it would go. And I took a job up. Fort Lauderdale to move a man's boat out of harm's way, and it turns out that it didn't go through Fort Lauderdale, it came through Key West. Oh, so um, you were on a delivery, delivering the, another boat, and you yeah. didn't have time to move your boat. Yeah, so my one boat that was on mooring, 
got taken out by another boat that broke free because remnants of his boat's boat is wrapped around the bow of my boat. My uh, my mooring is still there, but he he cut through my lines going to the mooring, and then uh, it ended up on Sunset Key. If you look on the internet, there's a it says Key West to open October 20th, and uh, that's my boat laying there with the uh, turquoise blue colored hull. And uh, I thought it was okay because it just kind of nestled on the sand and uh, the pictures I could get off the internet, it looked okay, but I finally got to it two days ago and it's completely destroyed. And then the other boat that was in the mooring field, the mooring just gave loose completely. There was about 50 boats over there. There's six of them left. The rest of them are all up on the beach, on the jetties. So I think I was, uh, I'm really sorry to hear about your boat. It's all right, I'm I'm past all that. (laughs) And I, you know, I think the, you know, that that's a real problem, I think, in in the anchorages and mooring fields around Key West, uh, is that if you have a really good anchored or secured boat, there are a lot of derelict boats that are not so well secured. Yeah. Now, I'm trying trying to think uh, is the name of the mooring field you were in was that the garrison bite or was that somewhere else yeah the joy lee that uh the mooring failed was in garrison bite my boat which is a 39 erickson that got taken out i'm not pointing the finger of blame at another guy because i mean it was a wicked storm even a buddy of mine that has all chain road and a big old anchor his anchor just snapped and he might have hooked on with another boat also i'm not sure but you know, it broke his chain. You know, it was a, it was a it was a nasty storm. Our boat was off of Fleming when it when it came loose. But it didn't it didn't land on Fleming Key. It landed on Sunset. I'll tell you another little story that kind of added insult to injury is, uh, you know, I, I bought a boat in Key Largo. I mean, in um, Fort Lauderdale, I've been looking at for a while to run my charter business down Key West, and I bought it right after Irma get back to Key West to get to my boats because they wouldn't let anybody in. And when I got down here, I guess the uh, powers that be thought we were looters. They arrested me and detained me in handcuffs for like four to five hours, interrogating myself and two other people that were on the boat before they finally let us free. But uh, yeah, that was a little bit of a ordeal. Here I got two total boats, actually three with my skiff, and now I'm in handcuffs. So you have a, you had a, your primary boat was the 39-foot Ericsson, and then you yeah, had that, another boat, and that was, what kind of boat was that? That was a 48-foot Choi Lee, very nice boat that I was using for charter. I just, uh, the owner of the boat and I just came to agreement about two months ago that I would work on it and fix it up and keep it going for him because he never got to use it, and the boat never used is one that falls apart. So I just started a charter business with that. He was heavily insured, so financially that wasn't a big loss. But my Ericsson, you know, I didn't have insurance on it. That was the boat I built for going off the grid. I had rain catches, solar panels. I was all self-sufficient on that boat. And how long had you lived on the 39-foot Ericsson? Four years. You quit your job? What were you doing before you... Uh... Well, I had a business. I owned an oyster bar restaurant. That went under in 2011. Yeah, you know, I took a time I went snow skiing in Colorado for snow ski season and then I came back and I just couldn't find a job anywhere you know so I decided to uh I figured the best way I could survive is 
on land, you know, and all the costs associated with being on land. So I, I bought a sailboat and spent a year fixing it up, getting it all, you know, off-grid compatible. Because I did this once before in my 30s and spent four years on a sailboat. So I really knew what I wanted, you know, as far as didn't want to haul water out to the boat for showering. And so I had a rain catch. I built the whole canopy top to collect my rainwater, which you know, I probably went a whole year without hauling water to my boat. And then uh, solar panels for freezers, that kind of thing. That sounds great. The The rain catchment system um, worked really well for you. How did how did you set it up? Well, I built a um, aluminum structure canopy over the top of the cockpit, probably 12 feet by 4, 5 feet wide. It was just, just had, it was aluminum top with a 1-inch lip around the whole perimeter with uh, two hoses going down first into a uh, first tank, which was my sediment catcher. I originally thought it was going to be my precious clean water. Turns out that that's not the precious clean water. So that was kind of more of a sediment catch, but it also held an extra 10 gallons. And then I had my tank down below that held 90 gallons. So it just, it just catch the rain and just kind of trickle down and through the hoses into the tanks. How often did you have to jerry jug water after that? Probably in one year, all depending where I was, you know, um, in the, in Fort Lauderdale area when I lived, I lived in uh, Hillsboro Inlet Bay for a while and then I, bopped around some lakes through Fort Lauderdale and then through the Bahamas. It wasn't until I got to Key West that was the first time about six months after getting here that I had to haul water out to the boat because it seems like a lot of storms come towards Key West but then they miss us here. So I wasn't I wasn't getting a lot of water probably maybe through the winter also. You know, in the in the last three years I've probably only hauled 40 or 50 gallons out to my boat. The rest of the time, it's all been collected. And, you know, I shower every day with it. I don't shower like a normal person does. I don't turn the water on and let it run, but you learn to survive on little or on less. But it's a, it's a whole freshwater shower, or do you, like, swim sometimes and then... Yeah, I swim. And, and when I was in the Bahamas, when I'm not around other boats, um, I have a shower in my cockpit that is salt water and fresh water. So I, you know, I, I lather up and soak and rinse off the salt water and then just have a fresh water rinse, you know, so it's, uh, you know, you can, you can shower in salt water, no problem, you can wash your clothes in salt water, but you need to be able to rinse the fresh water to get the salt off. So what's the situation in Key West right now? It, it sounds like you're not able to go back to Key West, is that correct? I wouldn't suggest anybody come to Key West right now. It's going to bounce back really fast, for sure, and I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, pretty confident they'll have the place up and running by Fantasy Fest, which is a big, you know, huge uh, industry for them down here bringing in money. But uh, the uh, right now they just started getting water on in different areas. There's only like three restaurants in all of Key West that are open, and they've been giving food away. A couple of them have just started charging. They, they just recently got new food delivery before their some of the restaurants that had generators were giving their food away because they couldn't keep it and they weren't selling it. it was kind of, uh, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of the homeless people, they couldn't afford to leave and they're here and uh, they've been working and pitching in and it's kind of cool to watch these guys that used to think we're just 
home sitting on the side of the road handing out food at the uh, Red Cross. So you are currently in Key West at the moment? Yep, yep. Luckily, I got a, my boat's gone. We have a friend that has a boat here that was on the dock that uh, he took off, and he won't be back for uh, a couple weeks. So he wanted uh, me to look after his boat, and I needed a place to stay. stay so uh, when, when more of his generosity than me really needing to look after his boat, yeah, I'm staying on a boat here in Key West. Were you in Key West for when Hurricane Irma hit, or did you come afterwards? I've been in Key West. How long ago did I move here, or was I here just during the storm? Were you here during came, the storm? No, I, I took it, like I said, I took a job up in Fort Lauderdale moving a boat right before Irma, you know, to get it out of the way of the hurricane. And that's when I, after the hurricane, I bought a skiff and came back, came back by water. There was no way coming back by land. Oh, wow. Okay, so where did you launch the skiff? Fort Lauderdale. Oh, so you drove the skiff all the way, so it must have had a pretty good motor on it. Okay. All right. So the challenge just getting gas, you know, and gas cans. There's not a gas can in the state of Florida to be bought. Wow. Yeah, I I think that's one thing that maybe people don't think about uh, when tropical storms hit is that uh, if the power is out, then the gas stations don't work. But there are other issues like gas cans and all that other stuff. Uh, I I had to buy five-gallon buckets from Home Depot. All the lids for all the five-gallon buckets had already been bought up. People were buying a five-gallon bucket to put gas in and to put water in. So there wasn't even lids for five-gallon buckets. I went to like four or five different Home Depots and Lowe's just trying to find lids. So how long did it take you to take the skiff from Fort Lauderdale? About 180 miles. By the time we got, I bought the boat, that was an ordeal in itself because none of the banks of Fort Lauderdale had cash. The guy I was buying the boat from was, he wouldn't give me his account information. He thought I was going to steal money out of his account. I'm an old school guy. I, I could have easily wired the money to his account, but he didn't want to do that. So I finally found a bank to write a cashier's check, and we didn't get out of there until about 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And as soon as we started going down the canal, tree across the canal and uh, blocked the canal for me leaving. So anyways, we uh, motored through the night on idle most of the night, about 4 o'clock in the morning, I decided to throw anchor. And then uh, the next morning, we took off. The man I bought the boat from never really ran the boat, I don't think. He just idled up and down the intercoastal. He said that he hardly burned any oil at all. And when we left, the oil tank was full. He assured us that we wouldn't need oil, and we couldn't find oil anyways. We couldn't find any mixed oil. But we just went with what we had, and the low oil alarm went off. On the way down, about midday, the following day, and I found a uh, marina on the Navionics and went in. It was completely devastated by the hurricane. It was somewhere around Summerlin, probably mile marker 40 or 50. I'm not real sure, but anyways, we went in. The boards were all, the hurricane boards were all, the windows and the windows were open, and, and all of the supplies from the marina were spread all over parking lot like a tornado and picked up props and everything and thrown them all over the place there was nobody around and i needed oil i couldn't just stay there there was no no civilization anywhere so i climbed through the window and uh found a gallon of mixed oil and went back to the boat and then the owner 
where the place pulled up, which uh, luckily he didn't pull up while I was in his place. I might got shot. But he uh, he pulled up and goes, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I want to pay for this gallon of oil I just stole. And he says, no, nah, you're all right. You can have it. He says, you got a two in the back of <laughs> And that was the end of that. We, we went on our way. So we arrived probably about the same time the next day that we left, so probably 24 hours. Oh, boy, that sounds like an adventure in itself. It was. And then <laughs> as soon as we got to Key West, we got arrested. Okay. So, you know, it, it was it was a major challenging. You said you were arrested in Key West. That was associated yeah. with the Choi Lee, the we charter were, boat. Uh, we weren't really arrested. They handcuffed us and detained us. And yeah. uh, it was we were, we had just gotten to, I got to Key West and we just were on fumes when I got to the dinghy dock where I I filled my dinghy up with with gasoline before I left because I knew I. detained and then and then the you couldn't find your boat after that you said you were only detained for a few hours yeah but they wouldn't let me in the port they wouldn't, they wouldn't oh, let I see. any boat traffic into the port so i had to sit they told me i couldn't move my boat from the dock so i didn't i and, see uh, for two days we sat on the skiff they finally opened the uh the port to just dinghy traffic and they considered my boat too big to go out there so i had to uh ride out with a friend and his skiff and that's when I got to my boat and saw it was completely destroyed. Alright, so this is maybe day three after Irma hit? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably. And today are cars getting through? I you, you mentioned that there's Yeah, they opened up they actually opened up two days ago. And I was really surprised to hear that they opened up two days ago because uh, nobody was coming in, but uh, the people were smart. They found out that, you know, Key West had no water, had no power. You know, why would you want to come back to that? So luckily the, the owners, business owners and, and people that lived here, you had to have, when you left Key West, they gave you a sticker for different zones, different colors of zones through the Keys. And when you came back, they allowed those different zones in at different, so that kept the, the sightseers just, you know, news people and every from just flooding in here because uh, there, there wasn't gas stations open. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't any power. But now it's starting to, there's a little bit, there was a food truck delivery to a restaurant yesterday I saw. You got to get food, water, electricity and in first before people can come back. I, I lived off of uh, Red Cross for a couple days because there, there was no food at restaurants, nobody was open. A few of the restaurants were giving away food. Glad you uh, had some resources of any kind, and I'm glad uh, that uh, at least you were able yeah. to see your uh, your boats, even though it wasn't a good sight. I yeah. can understand your 
your desire to get there. I, I remember after a tropical storm hit New Orleans, which was maybe a category one when it made landfall, but not when it was in New Orleans. Uh, it was very hard to get there a couple days after, uh, but certainly not, never had to go to the lengths that you did, like going there by sea. And, uh, you know, I mean, the ga- of course you couldn't get gas, the lights didn't work. Of course, there's a lot of trees down and things like that. Uh, but I think uh, the situation you've had there in Key West is uh, many times worse. Yeah, and Key West actually kind of got spared. The, there's no down buildings. There's no, There's a lot of uprooted trees and damage done by trees falling on buildings. But there's no buildings wiped out. Farther up the Keys, Marathon and Cujo and, and some other places, I mean, there's been houses that are completely gone. You know, they, they are sitting on the other side of the street, the streets now with boats up and down the highway, sitting in the middle of the highway. You know, they those are the keys that got hit the worst. Key West was kind of fortunate. I don't know if it was because of tidal, no tidal surge here or, or what, but, um, you know, the only damage that really the, the major damage was to the boats that, you know, ended up on the beaches. I, I think I heard that that maybe the 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 center of the storm was a little east of Key West. Yeah, but I also heard of people that were here that said that there was a calm in the middle of the storm, and the first part of the storm was far worse than the backside of the storm. So I think that some portion of the eye came through Key West. I just think either the angle of the the winds and the, you know what it was, you know, just didn't cause the damage. So uh, my wife and I and my daughter spent like two or three weeks on a mooring in Garrison Bight. And, uh-huh. and, you know, from that experience and thinking what would happen uh, in Irma, you know, it, Key West has a lot of trailer parks. A lot of people live in trailers. Yeah, in Stock Island, not so much in Key West anymore. You're right, Stock Island. Island. So Key West is connected uh, by these really small bridges to this place called Stock Island. And a lot, there's some very, very large trailer park communities uh, in Stock Island. They weathered pretty good. To me, the saddest part of Key West that happened was there's a place called Houseboat Row. You probably remember it. You know, big houseboats and, you know, with the smiley faces on the roof. And, and, you know, I think the city has decided to always keep that there because it's a part of Key West. And, you know, there's probably, I don't know how many houseboats, say if there's 30 of, them, 30 of them there, there's five or six of them that are completely destroyed, you know, either sitting on the bottom of the ocean or, or upside down or split in half. Those are, are probably not repairable. Overall, uh, how are the boats doing in the mooring field? Did many of them make it or, or did half of them make it? No, they're all gone. There's, there was 50 boats out there and there's six left. So it didn't didn't weather the storm very well there. No, they had a direct north wind is what the problem was. And also the moorings fell, failed. You know, the, the whole mooring themselves, I'm not 100% sure on this. And I might be talking without knowing the facts, but there's no mooring balls out there anymore, which tells me the whole mooring came up from the bottom. The system itself failed. But then again, you know, a direct, you know, 100 and whatever mile an hour wind coming from the north with no protection, four, five, six, seven foot 
for even a, a well past one survival. Well, Janet and I were speculating that most lines would chafe before the moorings came loose, but you think that's not the case. Yeah, no, the, the uh, and, and I, like I say, the, the line runs up through the, the uh, mooring buoy, but I still think that uh, the mooring, some of the mooring buoys would still be there. I haven't had a chance to inspect the Choi Lee yet. To, I went on it and took pictures for the insurance company, but I, I haven't checked to see if the whole mooring rig is, is attached to the front of the boat. That will tell the story. So you haven't had the chance to go out and see the boat closely? You've been prevented? Yeah, I climbed on the Choi Lee, and I wasn't on the Choi Lee four minutes, and the same guys arrested me, uh, which now we're kind of buddies, you know, after the whole ordeal was over, and, and you know, they you know they kind of understood why they were doing the things they were doing. You know, we got along a little bit better, and they came walking up while I was on the Choi Lee, and they're like, Mark, what are you doing? And I said... I was told by FWC I could come out here, and he says, yeah, but now you're on government property. Your boat has now come up on the government property, and you're not out on government property. I'm like, all right, man, let me just take these pictures, and I'm out here. So, yeah, the, the, lack, the lack of compassion, I guess I would say, was hard to swallow, you know. I know they were doing their job, and, and you know, I'm glad they were there if their main motivation was to keep looters away, but... And it was it was harsh. It was it was really tough, especially after you know going through what I just went through. It just seemed a little over the top. But exactly, I think anybody would uh, feel that way. You know, I think one of the things that struck me about Key West was also the high percentage of it that was a military base or some other type of government installation. So I don't know. I mean. You would think they would allow you to see your boats unless they thought there was some sort of safety concern that they just want to keep people away. But, yeah, I mean, uh, if, their, if their main intent was looting and the guy already knows me and he's got all my information and he knows I'm not looting this boat, I've already told him my boat was there and, and they could easily check out that information to be true, you know, why are you still giving me a hard time? <laughs> yeah, that's... Yeah, that's not right. You're not able to go to your Ericsson because it's you're afraid that you'll be arrested if you go to it. You've talked to yeah, the, those officers to and they... I didn't go to it for two days, but then they finally opened up the port to dinghy traffic and they would let me take a little, a little um, you know, as long as you're, it was a, a dinghy, you know, that you used for transportation, they allowed you to go out to the boats and look at them. So you did, you did get to see your boat Somewhere. Yeah, I finally got got to uh, to go to it, and uh, that's when I found out because I couldn't see the back side of it, and the back side of it, uh, the side of the hull is split open, and every my whole rain catch aluminum structure that was quite expensive. It took me quite a while to build, completely crushed, and the interior of the boat, <clears throat> everything is in disarray. I mean, sinks and cabinets and. And things that used to be attached to the sides of the hull are all in the middle of the boat, and it's filled with water and sand, you know? Yeah, it's, it's completely totaled. I'd be better off to try to rebuild anything other than that boat. Were you able to get any uh, personal items off the boat? The, um, I have one suitcase full of uh, what I used to call my business clothes. You know, now I wear shorts and flip-flops, but I had one suitcase I probably haven't opened in years, 
guy in the boat, and that's the only thing that that didn't isn't completely submerged in sand and, and dirt and water. Um, I don't even know if I'll ever wear that stuff again. But I took that off, and then I had some really expensive fishing poles that I uh, took off also. But other than that, I, I don't think I really want to go back to it. You know, there's my passport on there, my captain's license, some other things that you know. I've like to have, I don't know if I could even find them in the, the wreckage. It sounds like it'd be a very emotional experience, very yeah, difficult. Yeah, that too, you know, I spent a year working on that boat, on every little detail, you know, getting it to sustain, to take care of me for the rest of my life, living off the grid. It's all just gone, you know, so my buddy's like, man, there's a lot of value here, you know, your Perkins motor is a new rebuilt motor and the witches, and I'm like, not worth it. It's not worth my time and loss of energy to try to salvage that stuff. It, it must be really uncomfortable work too. It's not like you can duck into the air conditioning for, for a little bit, right? Yeah, you're, you're hard, kinda... hard work. You know, I'd rather go somewhere else and make some money back rather than you know that avenue. Yeah, if somebody said, here, I'll pay you to take this motor out of the boat, I'd say, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm, I'm older in life and you know, there's just certain things that, you know, my younger years, I would have been all about it. But now it's like, nah, I just don't want to do that kind of work anymore. It, it sounds like it's probably worth it to get that passport and captain's license. Yeah. Like, I mean, you, I, you can you always know, order a if, new one. If that, if that stuff's underwater, all that, you know, ink on the, my passport, the um, I can replace all that stuff, too, you yeah. know. I don't even know if that's worth it, you know? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, the the stamps that they stamp your passport worth, you know, I yeah. like to keep holding on to my passport because all the places I've been, you know, and all the stamps I have, but that stuff was, even just being living on a boat, the ink was starting to smear, and, you know, and I'm sure it's all okay. destroyed now. Yeah, why don't you tell me about your travels uh, since you started living on the Ericsson uh, 39 prior to Irma? Well, I set the boat up off the grid so um, I spent a year in Fort Lauderdale working making money to, to finish this boat off and then I took off and I spent six weeks in the Bahamas not going to land once just to uh, because you know to me land costs money and if, if I'm sustaining life on my boat and not spending any money I, that's you know my my whole thing is not having resources that have to be purchased and so I stocked my boat up with a good amount of stuff that I could just you know cook and make and you know catch fish and lobster and that kind of thing and so I spent the first six weeks in the Bahamas bebopping around heading towards St. Thomas and uh, that's actually where I wrote the book Off the Grid. The wind was coming out of the southeast and, and St. Thomas is from the southeast so after six weeks of bebopping through the Bahamas, it was okay because we were just going from island to island to island. You know, it was no problems. But then once we got to the farthest Bahamian island, which is, I think, Long Key, Turks and Caicos was next. And I figured we sailed one day for eight hours, holding as close to the wind as we could. And then when we packed back, I was able to chart how long it was going to take me to finish my trip to St. Thomas. With the information I just gathered, it was going to take 16 days and nights to go the remainder 750 miles. And I'm like, I'm not in for this. That's, that's just too much, you know. So 
that's when we just turned tail and said, you know, let's go to Key West, you know, and that's what got me here over a year ago. I was here for three months just, you know, lobstering and living off the land, and then I picked up a, a captain's job working for one of the local companies. I've just been kind of living on my boat, doing captain work when it comes my way, but the beauty of you know, living off the grid on a sailboat like I do, is I have one bill, which is my cell phone. And so if I don't have work, I don't worry about it. I, I sit in my hammock and, you know, enjoy it. And, um, you know, I work when I want to work. I don't have to, you know, be strapped to the, the rat rakes, what, what I call it, and have to. And I, I believe 90% of people have zero money at the end of the month or even less, and they're working all the hours of the day just for survival, and they're they're missing out on living because of it. I, you know, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how to change the grid, but my philosophy is, you know, I used to think I had to make more. Now my philosophy is I have to make, spend less. You know, if you're not spending it, you don't have to make it, basically where I've arrived. So that's kind of your philosophy. So you spent... How long did you spend in Fort Lauderdale before you went to the Bahamas? I was there probably a year. I went to Fort Lauderdale because I found the Erickson there. It's kind of a funny story. I, I, I sailed out of the New River, and I actually ran aground right at the re- New River. It splits and goes left and right. And I had one person looking at um, Navionics on a phone. I was steering the boat, and I saw a channel marker left, and I think I need to go left. She was telling me to go right, and I was like, well, let's stop and figure this out. And right about then is when I uh, ran aground, and I'm a big Facebook guy, so I put on Facebook that I ran aground, and an old buddy of mine was in uh, as a place in Fort Lauderdale, and he said, why don't you bring your boat over here and you can keep it at my house? He ended up giving me a job. At the time, I thought I was ready to take off on the boat. And I really wasn't. The boat was nowhere near prepared. It needed a lot of work to it. And I was fortunate that, you know, he gave me a job and I made the money to fix the boat up. So I was in Fort Lauderdale for a year working on the boat. Then you crossed over to the Bahamas. Where was your first stop in the Bahamas? Well, I remember a, at the time I chose to leave, there were some other boats and friends of mine that I had met at a marina were going to Bimini. So it was kind of like my sending off party. We all went over to Bimini. I actually went to Bimini and cleared customs at that point, hung out with them for about four or five days before they turned around and came back. And then at that point, I moved forward, just hitting different islands. You know, to me, the Bahamas is all about the water and what's under the water, not the land and the casinos and what's on top of land. So I just started just going from island to island, deserted islands to deserted islands. Never did much overnight sailing because didn't have to. There's so many islands close by. You just make it to the next island and go anchor. And, you know, it was a nice place. And we could, I could catch lobster or fish or whatever. I'd stay there for a while and I'd move on to the next place. But my main goal at that time was to get to St. Thomas because when I took off when I was 30, that's where I ended up. Got rooted in and I really wanted to go farther down island. So I was going to pick up at St. Thomas and just continue down island. But the winds weren't in my favor for doing that. No, they never are. <laughs> it's always upwind. You either motor a lot or you tack a lot. So you did you visit the Abacos or Yeah, I made it uh, you know, I made it all the way made it all the way through the 
So you went. So you went north of Bimini, and you went to the Abacos first, or no? Yeah, can't remember exactly where we went. To Luthra, Daniel, Long Key. I think we uh, sailed by Nassau. Then about a year and a half ago. I don't. I don't remember them all. But it was a fat. It was a fast trip back. I bet from uh, Long Key. It was. It took me uh, six weeks or thereabouts to get all the way to the farthest island, and when decided I, ha- I had a crew member on board which she turned out to be just phenomenal found her on a crew bay site and she just signed up for the uh the journey just to learn how to sail i didn't think she was ever going to get it you know sitting there pouring pouring everything i knew into her and, and she just could not sail feeling the wind you know i'd give her a compass heading and she'd be chasing the compass all over the place but she was never actually sailing just steering the boat and she finally got it in almost the final hours of us going um, towards St. Thomas. And, you know, she was she hated driving the boat because she was just so frustrated. And then all of a sudden, I heard her go, wee! <laughs> and, and she got it. It was like all of a sudden the light went off. And then now she's a sailor, you know. And uh, we always joked about her next, her first boat needs to be named wee! <laughs> yeah, so she came. She was on board, and, and we came back. Probably we're back in a week. You know, spent six weeks going there, one week back. And uh, I dropped her off in uh, Miami, and then we I, I continued on the rest of the way down to Key West. Uh, if folks wanted to contact you, they needed a captain to do a delivery for them, uh, how would they contact you? Absolutely. Um, the best way is just Mark J. Reinhardt on Facebook. They can, they can find me there and, and message me this whole uh, hurricane thing. And over the last couple of years of, you know, sailing and, and doing um, Facebook videos and things of that nature has really blown my Facebook up and I can't accept any more friends. But if they, you know, want to send me a, a, they can follow me on Facebook or they can um, send me a message through Messenger and, and I'll, I'll return the message. But uh, I'd really like it if they bought off the grid, and, and there's information on, on the back of that with my email address and everything also. Oh, that's great. And uh, that's available on Amazon. Yep. Yep. You can get it on Kindle or uh, paperback. Awesome. And the greatest, the greatest thing about the, right now that my book is helping me out with is uh, you know, I do have a lot of followers on Facebook and through this you know, devastation of my boat, everybody, you know, they were trying to set up a GoFundMe site for me, and I, I just, I'm not a take charity type guy, you know, there's people that are a lot worse than I am, but um, I said, if you if you want to help me out, you know, buy my book, and my book sales just in the last two days have just gone skyrocket high, just people, you know, giving. All right, so that's Captain uh, Mark J. Reinhardt. Our episode 34 guest, Bobby White of the Sailing Doodles YouTube channel, he had his boat in Puerto Rico, and I think it was near the San Juan area, and it was dismasted in the Category 5 Hurricane Maria, which is really devastated Puerto Rico, and they're talking about power being out for months. Fortunately, Bobby was not aboard, and he, 
I think he's in Thailand right now. I think if you follow Sailing Doodles, they do a lot of live events, especially on YouTube. And so uh, Bobby was looking to sell Rough Seas. He said that he did not he did not have insurance on his boat, Rough Seas. And if you listen to the interview, it was not a super expensive boat. You know, I think in general, if you listen to the 37 May Day podcast where Dan Govatos had to pay tens of thousands of dollars out of pocket to refloat his boat where they could sink it in very deep water you know if that doesn't make you want to get at least liability and salvage insurance i don't i don't know what will i think that that's kind of the other question for kind of uninsured boaters right now is is are they going to be on the hook uh, for some of the cleanup costs and you know i don't know what the right answer to that is but I think that there's, if you think you have kind of an inexpensive boat and you can weather the loss, even though you could afford the insurance, you should not think that your, the, lo- the totaling of your boat would be the end of your losses, that your losses potentially can go beyond the fact that you lose your boat. It could be that you have to pay for some type of salvage cost. So one of the things that the marina's in New Orleans, which had gone through Katrina, they were very, very vigilant about checking a boater's salvage and liability insurance, right? So obviously your boat could come loose and it could hit another boat that's very expensive. And, you know, that could be catastrophic regardless of your means, uh, depending on the boat that it happens to. So I mean, I'm not saying anybody's at fault or anything like that. I just think that you have to think about, especially if you're in the hurricane zones, that you keep your boat in the hurricane zones, which is something that I've done, right, that I'm doing now, that there are potential catastrophic risks that go beyond losing your boat that could be worse than losing your boat uh, if you're uninsured. And, you know, I'm not paid by any insurance companies. I don't have any affiliate links or anything like that. I would say that you probably... If you want, you want, you're looking for more exotic insurance that you're taking your boat outside the U.S. or outside Canada or Australia, if those are your home countries, then you, you should ask the, the Seven Seas Cruising Association group and you'll get a lot of good suggestions for blue water cruising. Um, but you've got a lot of options if you're staying within your home country uh, for boat insurance. And what I mean is ask the Facebook group. Uh, the Seven Sea Cruising Association does have an insurance company that is sponsored by them, but there are, there are many other insurers that you probably should look at too, depending on your boating needs. And the, the people I found in that group are, tend to be pretty experienced uh, with taking a boat to foreign countries, and they'll give you some good suggestions. In the patron-only bonus episode, I'll talk a little bit more with Mark Reinhardt, and then I'll talk about our time in Tahiti. On October 5th, 5 p.m. New York City time, we will be releasing episode three of our Round the World blog, season two, which is the episode where we are hit 
by a whale mid-Pacific. Subscribe on YouTube to check that out. Uh, the YouTube channel hit a milestone of over 2,000 subscribers this last month, and we have a lot of coverage, as I mentioned, of the impact of Hurricane Irma and Maria to boaters in Florida and the Caribbean. If you have a USA address, send me your USA mailing address, and I'll enter you in a drawing for one of my free books, either Slow Boat to Cuba or How to Sail Around the World Part-Time or Slow Boat to the Bahamas, and I'll be giving that away to celebrate hitting that 2,000 subscriber milestone on YouTube. My email is linuswilson at yahoo.com. Linus Wilson, all one word. Of course, if this is your first time listening to the podcast and you're not subscribed, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out if you can write a rating or review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Goodbye for now. My name is Linus Wilson. Have some fun on the water. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.